Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Will you please uh, welcome here to West Coast Live the executive chef who's been here for 21, 23 years, Annie Somerville, and their uh, wine director, Chaley Preet, here to West Coast Live. Thank you very much. What do, you, what do you do, Annie, when patrons talk with their mouth full? Here? <laughs> well, it's more what happens when I, us- I usually arrive at the table just as someone's putting a big piece of bread in their mouth, or at that moment when the wine is being poured, that sort of important moment. And, and, and it startles somebody? Pardon? I s- startles them, and then, we, then there's that pause. Yeah. So. Now, did you swim here to the, uh, to the restaurant? Not today. In a manner of speaking, um, I swam here. I got. I was at the uh, market this morning, though, the Ferry Plaza Market. But I thought about swimming. But have you swum here to your restaurant before? You're a swimmer. It goes in the bay. I am a bay swimmer. Uh, I have not swum to the restaurant before, but I have. Um, oftentimes, uh, when the tide is right, the South End and Dolphin Clubs do what they call the Gas House Cove swim, and this is Gas House Cove right here. So the swimmers jump off here, catch a big flood tide in, and then you go back to the clubs, which are an aquatic park. It's a great swim. And have you jumped off here from the, the pier? I have done it, yes. Does it take your breath away? Depends what time of year it is. Now the water's actually quite warm, relative for the bay. I've been out rowing on the bay, and I've seen swimmers with little white, you know, blinking lights on, on headgear. Those are the uh, South End Club Sunrisers and they're a pretty wild group of swimmers, and they kind of like to operate outside of the rules. A very independent group. And they, but that's as early, because they're swimming in the dark, and this is kind of like a navigation light that the swimmers wear in the bay. Yeah, it's like a beacon, yeah. so that, um, you know, maybe a fishing boat or a large tanker or a freighter will not run over them. <laughs> the, uh, I once uh, spent time out here in another job in this space that is now Green's Restaurant when the U.S. Forest Service made use of this space as the place where the National Forest exhibits were crafted. This was a woodworking shop. And where the administration office is now was uh, the art director's place. And that was all that was here in these several barracks of buildings and then a Safeway store. The San Francisco Zen Center was approached to put in this restaurant, what, 30 years ago? Let's see, Fort Mason opened in 1976, uh, opened its doors to the public, and Green's opened in 79, so probably 77 or so. We've got here what uh, somebody called the, uh, what they, what they call it, the redwood thicket here that, that people were in. You've, the burls, these giant pieces of redwood tree here. There's uh, black walnut doors that you, you walk through. The steps are from wood from the, uh, the Zen Center down in uh, the Tassajara Mountains. I mean, this continues the tradition of woodworking that went on in this place. Well, I always say Greens is a gift, really, um, because so many people contributed to opening this restaurant, and it didn't open with so many of the dreams that most restaurateurs open with today. Um, but really, the carpentry work was done by the Zen Center carpentry crew. Uh, a lot of the wood was just foraged from down, tree, down trees, and the redwoods uh, burl was a, um, that, all that wood was a gift to the sculpture, sculptor J.B. Blanc uh, from the Japanese sculptor uh, Isao Noguchi. And that big piece is bolted to the floor. And I don't know that anyone would easily carry it out anyway. 
not going anywhere. But the great thing is, we went through a period of time where everyone said that the redwoods were very dated. We should get rid of them. But now pe I, people are admiring them and loving them and stroking them, so they're back. The, uh, the idea of, of the Zen Center opening a restaurant, was that an unusual idea at the time? What, and, and how has it continued through a quarter of a century with those kind of ideals? It was a big risk for Zen Center to open greens. And uh, really, what we're doing here is really the seed of what we're doing here started with serving guests at Tassajara, Tassajara guest season, and also really has our roots also in baking bread. And, you know, it all got started with um, Ed Brown's cookbook, um, bread book, the Tassajara bread book, Tassajara cooking. You know, there's a whole lineage of people who've been involved. And, and everybody at Zen Center was very upset when uh, Richard Baker, who was then the abbot of Zen Center, announced that Greens was going to go into a giant space. Everyone thought, okay, we can open a restaurant, but it should be tiny. This was a big risk. And 25 years later, you're thriving. The, uh, has there ever been any uh, hint of putting any meat on the menu here? <laughs> any members meeting that say, how about a burger for lunch? We joke about it. <laughs> you know, someday, uh, perhaps this place will be called Reds, and there will be a different type of menu, but I don't think it'll be affiliated with the Zen Center then. But really, the, you know, all of the cook, uh, kitchens in the Zen Center, practice centers, prepare vegetarian dishes. So really, the cooking comes from that spirit and um, serving guests, taking care of guests. Your first book, uh, cookbook was called Field of Greens, and the second book was called Everyday Greens. Every, Everyday Greens. Yes. Uh, and how did recipes for cooking vegetarian food change in the interim? There was, there was about 10 or 15 years space in the spread of those books. Well, we've gone through our phases. Uh, the Greens Cookbook, which was our first book written by Deborah Madison and Ed Brown, uh, definitely reflected the first phase of Green's life, uh, that book came out in 1987. Very dairy-laden, very complex preparations. Um, it really was, you know, just a wild cookbook for that time, those kinds of preparations for a cookbook. And then, then, uh, then came the low fat, no fat. And then I was given an edict when, uh, for writing uh, Fields of Greens, two things. One, Lean, make it lean, lighten up on the fat and lighten up on the preparations, make, it, make the preparations less complex. And then with everyday greens, we're back kind of to middle ground. So dairy's okay, everybody's loving olive oil. Um, so we're just, and preparations still staying on the simple side. And what about this low carb thing? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm not, I have yet to figure out how the low-carb diet can apply to greens. Yeah. It's challenging. We, have, we did have a customer come in recently, and I thought this was the greatest thing. He just wanted a bowl of melted Asiago cheese, and we prepared that for him. A bowl of melted Asiago? That was his, that was his lunch, his soup? And I took that to mean that he was on the Adkins diet. <laughs> <laughs> but our, our, you know, vegetables are high in carbs, yeah. and we love them. So, and, and some I, of the skinniest people I see are vegetarians. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I have my opinions hmm. on that. So. Uh, well, what better place than Coast to Coast Radio? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, you know, this isn't a health food restaurant. And we've never been, uh, how should I say, a proselytizing vegetarian restaurant. However, I do feel that if Americans ate more fresh food, whole grains, really good fresh food, we'd all be in better shape today and, you know, 
the medical system wouldn't be in the kind of chaotic state it is. But a lot of people eat a lot of processed food, and I think our bodies are built to process. Roughage is a good we're, thing. We're supposed to be the processors. We, we are built to be good processors. Now, your associate here, Chaley Preet, has put together uh, the wine list. There are some 500 wines on this wine list. And somebody might say, well, you know, you have red wines with meat and you have uh, white wines with uh, fish. What do you have with uh, rutabagas? <laughs> I turn that over to Chaley. So, Chaley, what, what goes well with rutabagas? Hmm. Um, how about a nice uh, Viognier or Chenin Blanc or something that can... Uh, I think what's more important is all the things that are put together on the plate. So you want to have the sauces be something that the wine either cuts through or complements. So it depends what you're putting on that rutabaga. But we'll say there's a little goat cheese and some olive oil that's sprinkled, not drizzled. But and then you've got um, uh, dotted. Who dotted? That's not meteorological. Dotted. Anyway, so, so you say you've got a mix of, of these flavors. Is, is there something in, in the menu that, that Annie prepares that would tilt it more toward a, a red than a white? Yes. The minute she puts Zinfandel or sherry in one of our sauces, I have to go red. <laughs> um, the minute we have a roasted vegetable or roasted garlic, I usually go red. Um, there's, yeah, there's lots of little triggers. Um, but clearly, the lighter the, lighter the, the dish, um, anything with the champagne vinaigrettes that we use or the citrus elements, it, it, that immediately pushes you towards white, and then you want to you be able to lift those flavors, so you need a something to... How did you develop your interest in wines? Um, well, initially in college. <laughs> 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 I, uh, I got a... Was it a jug wine at first, or...? <laughs> Uh, my, my best friend and I have a joke from when we started drinking when we, I can't say how old, and uh, we would drink the peach reuniti and put a starburst in it. <laughs> um, those days were about 11 years old, I think, or 12. Um, but no, in, in college I got, I got a scholarship and needed to augment it, so I was going to wait tables like everybody else, and it ended up being a wine bar, the only wine bar in Atlanta, Georgia, and uh, a really great man um, and his wife took me under their wing and said, you have a natural palate. And uh, they encouraged me. So you could recognize it and you could parse out the flavors in, in the wine. Because some, some people can't. It's just a, a smooth wine or a harsh wine. No, it's all about the nose. So, um, you know, when, when I started shouting out, oh, this is terrible. It smells like burnt broccoli. He said, you know what you're talking about. But um, because it's, it's, and they say women have better palates, that we're able to identify um, flavors and uh, and nuances much better, and uh, just put a name to it. So that's, that's more of it. And Annie went off to the market today. How do you find your contribution to the restaurant, the wines? Um, I'm lucky in one sense that a lot of people come here. And then, um, but I, I just came back from a trip actually through Spain. I did a week in Spanish wine country finding new small wineries that um, either importers here had said you should check out or um, just on my own meeting people, which is fun. And what's your trick for keeping track of the different wineries and tastes as you go through a long, arduous day? I keep a notebook. I have about 10 notebooks so far this year on all the wines that I've tasted. And so I can go back and refer to them and see current past vintages compared to, to present. And otherwise, I can't, you, know, you can't keep it all in your head. Are you vegetarian yourself? No. No. So do you sometimes think this would go great with a steak? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, I don't actually eat that much meat, but yeah, sure, of course, you know. 
Definitely. And uh, Annie, when, when uh, Chaley talks about the, uh, the importance of the nose, I think that's important then for a chef too. It is. So when you go to the farmer's market today, did you, did you put a, a fruit or a vegetable right into your face? I put a big fig right into my mouth. <laughs> Better yet. But I had, it was very funny, I had a very large cart which had been loaned to me by Quesa, the um, educational group there that organizes the market. And it was like having a John Deere tractor. <laughs> I was afraid I was going to plow down young children and pets. <laughs> but I, there were no fatalities. There's been increasing popularity of farmer's markets. Uh, in, in some cities you can go to, for instance, Seattle, there's a farmer's market in, in one part of the city every day of, of, of the week. Is, is this a, 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 a place that's, that's a substantial part of uh, how organic farmers make their living, or is it just kind of a boutique kind of thing? I think it's, um, well, it's probably a little bit of both. I know that the, the growers that come to the markets here in the Bay Area find this to be a very viable for their livelihood and their continuation. And it's just great. It's just, it's just really fun. And it's just really different to taste uh, produce and ingredients that have just you know, been freshly cropped as opposed to something that's been around for a while. So uh, we're now being handed uh, another dish here, which is? It's a Mexicana pizza with corn and grilled torpedo onions and poblano chilies from Marquita Farms and a pumpkin seed cilantro pesto. And where are those the farms, the Marquita Farms? Marquita is, uh, they are growing, they grow in two areas. They are in Watsonville and they're also in a really interesting place called, Andy calls it the Bolsa. It's the bottom of the Santa Clara Valley, which is now, of course, aka Silicon Valley. Which used to have uh, plums and yeah. Other fruit. But it's very fertile. And the great thing about growing in two locations is you can have your cool weather crops going and your hot weather crops going at the same time. Oh, and I forgot to mention the cheese. The, um, there are two types of cheese here. There's a smoked mozzarella and then a uh, cheddar called St. George cheddar, which is made by the Matos family up in Petaluma. And why is it called St. George? It, he was a dragon slayer. Uh, <laughs> it's a family recipe, uh -huh. and it's from uh, their families from the Azores, and it's their Portuguese. And yeah, that's, so the, that's part the of the tradition. Yes. And so, Chaley, what wine would you serve with this? I thought you were going to ask me that. So, <laughs> um, right now, one of my favorites is uh, from Vinum Cellars, and it's called Elephantus Blanc. And there's two two young winemakers sourcing from all organic, sustainable farms. And it's a blend of uh, a Chenin Blanc, uh, Chardonnay, and Pinot Blanc. And it. It's beautiful in the sense that it would, just, it would lift all of the great flavors. So it's, it's, it's not too dry and it's not too sweet a wine? No, it has a great floral aspect in the, in the nose, and then um, it's weighted down a bit by the, by the Pinot and the Chard. It's great, yeah. Well, Chaley Preet and Annie Somerville, thank you for talking about this food. I'll ask you about another course as they come out a little later on. Great. Thank you very much. Thank you. Annie Somerville, executive chef and the wine director. Chaley Preet here from Greens. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.